things are not always what they seem. Or there's more to them than meets the eye. These statements were never more true than when Jesus walked the earth. By all outward appearances, Jesus was an ordinary Jewish man. He was born into an ordinary Jewish family. He was trained for an ordinary Jewish trade. There was nothing extraordinary that really stood out about him in his life. In fact, we know from later chapters in the Gospels that when that Jesus was so ordinary that when the, that when the soldiers went to arrest him, they had to have somebody to point him out to them. One of his disciples betray him and point him out. But things and people are not always what they seem because sometimes there's more to someone than meets the eye. The passage we're going to look at this morning reveals that despite how it looked, how it appeared, Jesus was no ordinary man. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 is what we're going to read. should be on page 796 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly... They looked around him and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain and he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and he restores all things. And yet, how is it written of the son of man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written of him. Title of the message this morning is the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We exalt you and we magnify you. Father, we come today with a desire to know Jesus better, to be better able to go out into a lost and a dying world and be lights that shine brightly for him. Oh, God, as we look at this passage today, let your Holy Spirit come and reveal to us evermore the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us understand how great and awesome he is, how wonderful and worthy he is. And let this revelation of the glory of Jesus impact our lives. Let it transform us and make us into new people. With new values and new priorities who live in new ways. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought. Clarity of speech that I could say what you once said. Nothing more and nothing less. Have your way in all of our hearts, all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. 
the last of Mark 8, Jesus had said he would be rejected, he would suffer, and he would die, and then he would rise from the dead. The disciples were shocked as this was not what they expected from the Jewish Messiah. And Peter was shocked and takes it upon himself to rebuke Jesus and tell him this would never happen. In Jesus' response to Peter, he tells him what is likely the, the greatest passage we have on what it means to disciple Jesus, in which we're told we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Jesus says that self-denial and cross-bearing are so crucial that we forfeit our souls if we refuse to do it. He goes on and he says that if anyone is ashamed of him and his words, particularly his words about the level of devotion that is demanded of him, that when he comes, that he will be ashamed of them when he comes back in his glory. And he finishes by telling them they will not see or they will not die until they see the kingdom of God come with power. That's Mark 9 and 1. Now we can imagine that after all of that Jesus has said, the disciples had many questions. But none were answered as we see. Six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on a high mountain by himself or by themselves. And as they go up, Jesus is visibly changed before their eyes. He becomes radiantly white. The picture is essentially that Jesus begins to glow. Now, what we're seeing is not something that is being added to Jesus to make him stand out. Rather, what we're seeing is the glory of Jesus that has always been there being let out. They're seeing a bit of the revelation of the glory of Jesus. Now, this revelation of the glory of Jesus is important because of what Jesus has just said. Right? Everything Jesus told them that was going to happen to him. Everything Jesus told them about what it meant to be his disciple. All of that was Enormous. From the, the life he calls them to live to what promises will come to pass. And at this point, the disciples need some sort of an affirmation that they're not wasting their time living as disciples of Jesus. And this affirmation comes in the form of a measure of Jesus's glory being revealed to them, them seeing him in this spotless, glowing Whitened state. They're given the revelation of Jesus' glory to put some starch in their souls and some stiffness in their spines so they can be fully devoted disciples of Jesus who would live in the ways He had told them in Mark chapter 8. So they would give their lives to accomplish His will in the world. This idea of seeing the glory of Jesus and that being a, a fuel for devotion to Jesus is not... New. This isn't the first time somebody has seen the glory of Jesus and it being meant to, to stiffen them and starch them and shoot them out in service to Jesus. Hold your fingers here. We are going to come back. But turn to Isaiah 6 quickly. Ish. Isaiah 6 should be page 521 in your pew Bibles. Now, Isaiah 6 is the call of Isaiah to be a prophet of God. Isaiah is called to serve God in a time of transition and decline for the nation of Israel. In the time of Uzziah's reign, it talks about in verse 1, was one of prosperity, peace, and relative faithfulness to God. But this was all about to change. Uzziah had died, 
And the people had already begun a descent into depravity that would only worsen as time went on. The people were giving themselves over to greed, to indulgence, to drunkenness, idolatry, sexual immorality. They mocked what was righteous. They persecuted uh, others because of their faith in God. Isaiah would be sent to a people who at one time had been devoted to God, but who had now perverted their values to the point that they called evil good and good evil. Now that should sound very familiar to all of us in the room today. People once devoted to God who are now indifferent, indulgent, and idolatrous. A people who were once devoted to God who now share the morality and immorality of the pagans around them. A people who were once devoted to God but now mock righteousness and revile those who try to live in a righteous manner. A people once devoted to God who have a, a perverted value system and call evil good and good evil. Living in a time like this makes mere faithfulness to Jesus difficult. Much less just being devoted and actively living for him on a daily, regular, moment by moment basis. What Isaiah needed was he needed a vision of Jesus' glory to, to motivate him to faithfulness. It's what we need in our day as well. We need to see the greatness of And the glory of Jesus. We need a revelation of his glory. Now, I say Jesus when I'm talking about this Isaiah passage. Because of something we're told in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41. John references this passage in Isaiah 6. And he says that what Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. And what Isaiah wrote about was Jesus' glory. So the the glorious Lord we see in this passage that is probably so familiar to us is Jesus. This is a revelation of the glory of Jesus. Now, notice in verse 1 through 4 how we ought to see Jesus. It says, in the the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. The train of his robe filling the temple. So right away we're we're seeing that Jesus is great. He is awesome. He is awe-inspiring. The seraphim were standing around him, each having six wings. With two, each covered his face. With two, each covered his feet. With two, each flew. So now you look at the description of them and you look at Revelation 4, which is a parallel passage. Personally, my mind, I can't, I can't picture what these things must have looked like, what they must have looked like. But here are these beings that in and of themselves are probably pretty awe-inspiring, probably pretty majestic and, and powerful. And they are themselves worshiping the Lord. But they're not only worshiping the Lord, they, they cover their face. It was a sign that they were not worthy to look upon the Lord on the throne to whom they were praising. These these beings that if we saw one of them, we we might just die of fright. And they look at the Lord and they know that they are nothing in comparison to Jesus on his throne. They know that they are not worthy to look upon him. And as they worship him, they cry out, holy, holy Holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
we see next that Jesus is holy. In, in Hebrew language, particularly the ancient Hebrew language, one of the ways that you expressed a depth of something was to say it repeatedly. Right? So if you've read the Old Testament, you know the story of Absalom being killed. And David, to express his great sorrow at the death of his son, says, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, oh, Absalom. And his repetition of that is showing the depths of his sorrow at the death of his son. In the same way, the repetition of holy is showing the the greatness of the holiness of Jesus. It is letting us know he's not kind of holy. He is completely holy. He is the uttermost of holiness. He is so holy, he is not like us at all. He is he is a level of holiness we could not reach at any point in our lives. And Jesus is worthy because the whole earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare his glory. The earth shows his handiwork. The the sounds of the wind and the rain and the brooks worship and declare the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of nature and all of creation is constantly singing his praise. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the Lord to whom we come to worship today. This is the Lord that has redeemed us. And saved us. This is the Lord that we say he is our Lord. Now the question we could have is. How should we respond. To a revelation of the glory of Jesus. Well. We see this in the way Isaiah responds. First. Seeing the glory of Jesus reveals the severity of sin against Jesus. Notice what Isaiah says. Verse 5. Woe to me. For I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Now, notice the reason Isaiah is overcome by the depths of his sin is because he has seen the King. Seeing Jesus in all of his glory, the holy and worthy and awesome God, Jesus, Makes Isaiah aware of how severe his sin is. And and I, I think it is meant to teach us the severity of sin. Because notice what Isaiah confesses. Unclean lips. Right? He doesn't confess, I'm a serial killer. He doesn't confess, I'm an adulterer or a fornicator. He confesses, I just say things I ought not say. And because he says that... He says, I am undone or I am ruined. The picture is he he recognizes that in the light of the holiness of Christ, his sin is so severe that if Christ were to just kill him, it would be what he deserved. When we see Jesus as he is. We recognize sin ruins us. We recognize sin as a heart issue. We recognize how pervasive it is in our culture. And let me say, and this is just as an aside, we're moving on. If we do not see our sin as this serious, it is because we do not understand the glory of Jesus. No one who understands the glory of Jesus thinks their sin is no big deal. There is 
we see Him in all of His holiness and all of His majesty and all of His worthiness, our sin becomes so great and so awful and so horrid because it is against Him that we realize we're ruined. Seeing the glory of Jesus reveals the severity of sins, but it also reveals the need of salvation from Jesus. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sins. Notice, Isaiah didn't try to fix it himself. Isaiah didn't see the glory of the Lord and say, oh my goodness, I'll do better, God. I'm going to turn over a new leaf, Jesus. I'll, I'll be different from this point on. He's just ruined. There's nothing he can do to fix the problem. Salvation must come from the Lord. And again, when we see Jesus in all of his glory, we cease to try to earn our righteousness. We cease to try to do righteous without being righteous. When we see Jesus in all of his glory, we would never say, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't know that I really need all that Jesus stuff. Someone who doesn't see the need of salvation from Jesus really has not ever seen the glory of Jesus. When we see him as holy and worthy and great and awesome, we just... We have nothing. If He doesn't save us, there is no salvation for us. And then, seeing the glory of Jesus reveals the severity of sin against Jesus, the need of salvation from Jesus, and the necessity of living for Jesus. And I heard a voice in verse 8 saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Once Isaiah has seen the glory of the Lord, recognized the severity of his sin, received salvation from the hand of God. He's ready to go and do whatever it is God would want him to do. The Lord says, whom shall I send and, and who will go? Isaiah's like me, pick me, I'm the guy. What's the mission? Isaiah doesn't know. How long? Isaiah doesn't know. Will it be easy? Will it be hard? Will people like me? Will people hate me? Isaiah doesn't know. But here's what Isaiah understands. He has seen the glory of the Lord. And he has understood the depths of his sin. And he has been forgiven for that sin by this great God. And if that God will let him clean toilets in his name, then by golly, he will give his life and make the cleanest toilets anyone in Israel has ever seen. He will do what the Lord wants him to do. No matter what that might be. With absolutely no reservations, Isaiah leaps at the opportunity to serve the Lord of glory. And that is the point of the passage. Isaiah saw Jesus. And seeing Jesus changed everything for Isaiah. Since Jesus is great, holy, and worthy... Since Isaiah is not, and since Jesus has saved him and cleansed him, Isaiah will give his life to doing whatever it is Jesus wants him to do. Go ahead and turn back to Mark now. Because this is also the point of the transfiguration. The disciples were given this glimpse of the glory of Jesus. 
so they would be moved to give their lives in service to Jesus. But it was true for Isaiah. It's true for the disciples. It should be true for us as well. When we see the glory of Jesus, our greatest treasure becomes Jesus. And we joyously give our lives in service to Jesus. Since Jesus is great, holy, awesome, and worthy. Since Jesus is holy and we're not. Since Jesus has saved us and not we ourselves. We have not saved ourselves. We give our lives to doing whatever it is he wants us to do. This is how we respond to seeing the glory of Jesus. Knowing Jesus is great, holy and worthy is key to giving our lives in service to Jesus. Because Jesus demands a high level of devotion. For example, as we've said in Mark 8, Jesus said to be his disciples. We we must we had to take up, deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. But it's not just that. In Luke 14 and 25, Jesus said, if we love anyone or anything more than we loved him, we we couldn't be his disciples. Not we shouldn't. Not it would hinder. We we can't. Revelation 2.10, Jesus told a church that was suffering great persecution for his name, that their persecution was about to get worse. And what they were to do was this. Be thou faithful unto death. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a bold statement to make. You're suffering for me. It's going to get a lot worse. Don't back up. Don't let up. Don't shut up. You just keep going until they kill you or the persecution ends. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus asked why we're going to bother calling him Lord if we're not going to actually do the things he said we're supposed to do. Now, that's just what Jesus said. New Testament authors elaborated on the teachings of Jesus to show the extraordinary level of devotion he demands. They explained that those who were saved by Jesus must be obedient to Jesus. 1 Peter 1 and 14. Those who were saved by Jesus must live differently than they did before they were saved. Also 1 Peter 1 and 14. Those who are saved by Jesus must live differently than the unbelieving world around them. Romans 12 and 2. Those who are saved by Jesus must make holiness a priority in their lives because Jesus is holy. And without holiness, none of us will see the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Hebrews 12, 14. Those who are saved by Jesus must offer their lives as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Romans 12 and 1. And those who are saved by Jesus must endure hardship as good soldiers for Jesus. 2 Timothy 1 and 3. That's just a small sampling of what's expected of us as disciples of Jesus. These are, by any standard, exceedingly high demands. Not only are these high demands, they are not easily fulfilled. What would fuel this 
kind of devotion to Jesus? What would fuel us to be faithful unto death, to endure hardship, to deny ourselves? What would fuel this level of devotion to Jesus? It is seeing the glory of Jesus. Seeing the glory of Jesus reveals his greatness, his holiness, and his worthiness. And at the same time, it reveals the depths of our sin and our desperate need to be saved by Jesus. And when the great, holy, and worthy Jesus saves us out of the depths of our sins, we are left with a holy awe. Holy awe of Jesus. And we willingly and joyously give our lives to do whatever it is he would have us to do. We do this because when we see the glory of Jesus, it begins to change our value system. Prior to seeing the glory of Jesus, we value one thing. But after we see the glory of Jesus, we value something different. And that something different is Jesus. We begin to value Jesus as our greatest treasure. Jesus is worth more than our comfort. Jesus is worth more than sin. Jesus is worth more than the pleasures of this life. Jesus is worth more than our lives itself. We will give up anything for Jesus. And if we don't see the glory of Jesus and begin to value Jesus as our greatest treasure, then we'll likely follow Jesus so long as following Jesus does not threaten our greatest treasure, whatever that may be. But on the other hand, if we see the glory of Jesus and we begin to value Jesus as our greatest treasure, then we will do whatever Jesus wants us to do no matter what. This is a continual theme in God's word. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul. But whatever things were gained to me, these I have counted loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. At some point in Paul's past, he valued one thing and then something had happened. And his values had changed. And the things he once valued so highly, he now counted as loss and had given them up. What was it that changed Paul's value system? It was seeing the glory of Jesus on the Damascus road. The things he had counted for gain at this time were his own works, his own goodness, and his own righteousness. Paul his value system had changed so much that he now realized those things were not only useless, but they were worse than useless because they actually served to keep him from knowing Jesus. And after coming to know Jesus, after meeting Jesus and seeing the glory of Jesus, he would really willingly count them as loss. But it wasn't just his works and his goodness and his righteousness that Paul counted as lost. Notice the next part. It was all things. 
Now, there's a, a great contrast in Paul's words. At one point in the past, he counted these things as loss. But now he still counted them as loss. And now he still counted them as rubbish. When Paul said he counted them as loss, he was talking about that point in the past that after seeing the glory of Jesus, everything changed and all the stuff that he thought mattered didn't matter. But now years later, Paul realized those things still didn't matter. They still were nothing. He still was counting them as loss. It was a continuing action. Paul did not have buyer's remorse. He didn't count those things as loss and lose those things and look back and think, oh, if only I had some of it back. Instead, he said, oh, I still count it as loss. There's still no good in comparison to Jesus. He would sacrifice anything so that he could continually know Jesus better and continually do the things Jesus wanted him to do. Now, the way this is worded is meant to show these things had not been taken from Paul. He had forfeited them willingly because his value system was different. He cast them away willingly because Jesus was better than anything else. Now, when Paul says all things, he does mean all things. Paul had sacrificed more than his own works and his own goodness and his own righteousness. Paul had also forfeited his social standing, his financial security, his intellectual acceptance, and his political aspirations. Remember, Paul was a young man and already a member of the Sanhedrin. He had risen above his peers, he says in Philippians. He was likely destined to be famous, well-known, well-respected. From what we understand, he was from a wealthy family. Well-connected. He had been he had gone to the best schools and he had lost all of those things. He lost his job. He lost the respect of his peers. He lost any hopes of the political ambitions and aspirations he had. All things literally meant all things. And it was not a decision he regretted. Instead, it was a decision he was still making. He placed a high value on Jesus. He had seen the glory of Jesus. And in comparison to the glory of Jesus, all of that other stuff was rubbish. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says dung. And the Greek word used there means just that. These things went from being what Paul treasured. To the worst sort of rubbish. Why? Why would Paul willingly sacrifice everything in his life and count it as rubbish? For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is more than just knowing about Jesus. This is genuinely knowing Jesus. Having seen the glory of Jesus, Paul knew that if that Jesus would have a relationship with him, that relationship was better than anything he could find on this earth. 
And the idea of surpassing value means it was greater, far greater than anything else. Again, it was such so knowing Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus was so much greater that everything else was rubbish in comparison. As Paul looked at his life, his meritorious righteousness, his social position, his wealth and his family and his job and everything else, he realized Jesus was better than all of it combined. Jesus wasn't better than one part of it. Jesus was better than all of it. He would willingly sacrifice it all so that he might know the glorious Jesus he had seen on the Damascus Road. What about us? Does our view of Jesus lead us to value Jesus in this way? It would be easy to say, well, that was Isaiah. That was Paul. That was the apostles, but it's not really us. I, I wonder, though, do we say that because it's true? Or do we say that because it's comfortable? I mean, consider the following parables from Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold everything that he had and he bought it. Two parables, one point. Jesus is of greater value than anything and everything we currently possess. Jesus is of greater value than anything and everything we could ever acquire in our lives. Jesus is worth losing or sacrificing everything else. So that in the end, if all we have is Jesus, he is still of greater value. With Paul, with Isaiah, with these parables, we have to recognize the sacrifices weren't made grudgingly. The man who found the treasure in the field with joy sells everything he has. He doesn't walk off griping. Why did I have to be the one to find the treasure? I knew if I took this shortcut, bad things would happen. They always happened to me. He was joyful in his sacrifice. And again, in the end, same with the guy with the pearl. All they had was the treasure. And all they had was the pearl. But what they had was worth everything they had ever owned. It was worth more than everything they had ever had. They didn't feel gypped that all they had was the treasure and the pearl. They were amazed that they got to have the treasure and the pearl. They realized is what they had found in Jesus is greater than everything they had. All they had was stuff. But what they found was the glorious God in the flesh. Jesus, the Messiah, and Jesus, the Savior. 
And he is worth more than anything. These stories are meant to remind us the greatness of Jesus. They're meant to remind us Jesus is more valuable than anything else. Anything else. Anywhere. The idea is when we. When we see the glory of Jesus. We are so amazed. That we can know him. And that he wants to know us. That we can love him. And that he loves us. And that he will take away our sin. And he will give us his righteousness. And in that moment of recognition. We realize. Everything else in comparison is dumb. I mean, it's it is just the worst, worthless sort of rubbish ever. And in that recognition, we are willing to give anything and everything that is required of us to know him. We are willing to do anything and everything he asks us to do. Again, when we see the glory of Jesus, our greatest treasure becomes Jesus. And we joyously give our lives in service to Jesus. Now the passage begins. Jesus taking them upon a mountain. And giving them. Them being allowed to see a measure of his glory. Isaiah passage begins. With Isaiah seeing the glory of the Lord. Paul's story begins with him seeing the glory of the Lord. Everything else we've talked about flows naturally from that. But this is where it must start with us. We must embrace the revelation of Jesus given to us in God's word. Because the revelation of Jesus is that he is great and holy and worthy. He's glorious. Everything in our life, everything about how we live, it's going to flow out of how we see Jesus. I I don't believe just seeing Jesus this way is something we can muster up on our own. We need the Spirit of God to sort of pull back the veil and give us a glimpse of the greatness and the glory of Jesus. Something interesting, though. Luke's account of this story says Jesus took them upon the mountain to pray. And while I can't make a big point out of this since Mark doesn't use it, if I was going to harmonize the accounts and make a point, I would explain that Peter, James, and John, they prayed so long they were overcome by sleep. I would further say this greater revelation of the glory of Jesus only came... After this intensive time of prayer. And the application I would draw out from this. Is that if we want to know Jesus better. If we want to better see his glory. Then we would probably need to make praying. A priority in our lives. If we desire to see the glory of Jesus. And we need to take the opportunities given to seek 
for the Holy Spirit to do this in prayer. Now, the Holy Spirit will give us this greater revelation of Jesus if we seek it. Something great in this passage. Only Peter, James and John are invited. They're the only ones who get to go. The others all miss out on the trip. And in fact, Jesus tells them not to even tell the others what they saw. Two points to know from this. One is we must be invited by Jesus to see the glory of Jesus. God's word is clear. We do not suddenly desire Jesus or begin to seek Jesus out of our own initiative. Psalm 27 and 8, John 6, 44, make it clear Jesus desires us long before we desire Jesus. And Jesus seeks us long before we begin to seek him. Our every desire for Jesus is merely a response to Jesus' desire for us. But here's the good news. Jesus is inviting us. Do you have a longing in your heart to better see the glory of Jesus? That's not yours. You didn't create that. You didn't stir that up. That is the spirit of the living God at work drawing you to that place. Not only that, but Jesus invites us all. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Tell us that the, the weary and the burdened are invited to come to him and find rest for their souls. Are you weary? Are you cast about? Are you crushed by the cares of life? Jesus invites you to come. See his glory. Find rest for your souls in him. And then as disciples of Jesus, those who are born again, we are always invited. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says Jesus has opened up a way for us. And we are always able to go in and to seek the Lord our God. If you're a born again disciple of Jesus, you are always invited. The door is always open. The only hindrance is in our seeking. So this morning, I want to end two things. You're invited. The Spirit, if you have a desire for this, the Spirit is drawing you. If you need rest for your souls, the Spirit is drawing you. If you're a born-again disciple of Jesus, the way is open to you. We're all invited to the greater revelation of the glory of Jesus. The question is, what are we going to do with it? And we do one of two things. We always do one of two things. We stand here or we draw near. I'll tell one story and then we'll close truly, legitimately close. The book of Exodus, God is going to let the people see a measure of his glory. And he is going to gather the people around and they're going to hear him thunder from heaven and give them the Ten Commandments. And so they gather around and the glory of the Lord descends. And in the midst of thunder and lightning, God speaks and they all hear the Ten Commandments. And the way it's worded, they all know God is speaking to them in that moment. And when it's all over, they go to Moses and they say, Wow, that was scary. We didn't like that. 
how about from now on, we'll stay back here and you go and talk to God. And then you come tell us what he says. And we're good with that. So the story ends with Moses walking up the mountain into the deep darkness where God was. And the people standing afar off. We always respond in one of those two ways. We're all either Moses going up to the mountain to where God is. Or we're all the people who are standing afar off content to hear from someone else what they've experienced with God. Hearing from other people can be encouraging. It can be strengthening. But it is rubbish in comparison to going up the mountain to where God is. Do not live vicariously through the experiences of others. Do not stand afar off. The invitation is open. The door is open. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the Holy Spirit show you better who He is and what He is like. Let's stand.